0: Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like
1: to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh?
0: I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too to Will. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. He's a big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f- are the Knutsons? We like movies!
1: Hello everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, your favorite semi-monthly pro-movie Podcast uh, covering everything from uh, new releases to old releases to oeuvres to retrospectations. Uh, Really the whole shebang. Uh, I am Oscar Dahl, your co-host here, coming to you from sunny New Meadows, Idaho. Special uh, podcast location during quarantine. Uh, And I'm here with uh, my good buddy of about two and a half decades, Matthew Knudsen. Matt, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing excellently i I gotta say just hearing you um nail that opening salvo i i just listen to it and think to myself wow that's that sounds like a podcast i'd really like to listen to that that sounds (laughs) that sounds right up my alley i think i'd like to be i think i'd like to become a regular on a podcast like that well that's
1: nice of you to say let's hope some people agree with you
0: um i'm glad to hear it's nice and sunny in idaho it's beautiful here in los angeles california as well it's actually starting to feel like summer this week we're creeping into the 80s it's a little bit of a of a double-edged sword considering that we can't really go out and and take too much advantage of it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to you know sit here and look at at the sun and blue skies and keep my spirits up, as opposed to if it was pouring outside or something. Some people are still under snow in this country, which I think is ridiculous.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can see it both ways. I can see if you're in shitty weather, you might as well stay inside anyway. But my fiancé and I, Laura, relocated to a cabin here in Idaho to sort of get some more space. We have a new puppy so we can walk the land a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's been really delightful sort of moving us away from the realities of quarantine in the big city, which, uh, which was starting to get to us, especially where our apartment is. You can't really... We couldn't see outside, so you're staying indoors. It's it's it just felt felt wrong. So this has been much better. I feel like a real Idahoan at this point. <laughs> you know, I bought like an Idaho jacket. I have my beanie that I wear outside. I'm, I've grown a beard kind or, of a hermit these days, but it, some it's camouflage. Fun. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, yeah. I was contemplating growing a quarantine beard. I just really, I don't mind having a, I either want to be, you know, one extreme or the other, I either want to be completely clean shaven, or I just want to have the beard I- immediately form overnight. You know, I don't want to go through the, the bullshit of three weeks or a month that it takes to actually get past the uncomfortable stage. Cause I've, I've had a beard before and it was fine once it got out there and it looks kind of goofy and you can, you know, style it into weird ways, but I don't want to go through the month or so that it takes to grow it out that i find to be wildly uncomfortable so i've i've been shaving you know every couple days just keep it you know just in case just in case something were to change or somebody were to show up or i have to lean out the window and say hi to somebody i I want to be ready i I think that's a
1: bad attitude (laughs) man. i mean if if ever was the time to grow your beard this is the time i know as as an oft bearded man myself it takes work you know, good things don't come easy, Matt.
0: My other thought was that I might just uh, shave my head for quarantine. Just be like, oh, if okay. I'm, if I'm not going to see anybody. I've always wanted to shave my head and see what it lo- see what I look like completely bald. But then my fear is I'm getting to an age where if I shave it completely bald, it may not grow all the way back, and I'm not sure if I'm ready to make that commitment yet.
1: Is that an urban legend or is that true?
0: No, no. no. I mean, I, I know it'll grow back. It just it just may take a long time, and it may not necessarily grow back full in all the places I want it to. So yeah, <laughs> that scares yeah, me. Yeah, that,
1: that, that is a scary. Thing. Uh, well, I'm going full long hair, big beard, and, and it feels right. Love it. This is part three and the final edition of John McTiernan's oeuvre, our second oeuvre that we've done, a very different oeuvre than the Spielberg oeuvre. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about three movies that are, well, pretty well forgotten and pretty well forgotten for good reason, but they're interesting enough in their own right to wrap up this gentleman's career so far.
0: Yeah, uh, these ones, all three of these films, I'd say, are pretty much lost to history. In that regard, the man's career has sort of coasted to an inauspicious halt, I'd say. I mean, his most recent film was 13 years ago, right? No, 17 years ago. Yeah, Basic was 2003. And so the fact that he was so red hot in the late 80s kept cruising and kind of like found a second gear in the 90s and even had a number of comebacks to kind of fizzle in the early 2000s and then uh, completely fall into utter obscurity. I mean, he did Prison Time, which I think had a lot to do with it. But the fact that he hasn't made a film since 2003 and yet is still responsible for some of the you know most important genre films ever made, I just think is very bizarre and it makes him a pretty singular figure. and. Because of his legal troubles and because of the fact that it has been so long that he made a film of quote unquote relevance, I think it's interesting to talk about these films, not necessarily to pretend that they're somehow forgotten masterpieces or something, you know, like we're not here to yeah. champion Rollerball and say, oh, you know what, you got, you know, it might be worth revisiting Rollerball because that, that movie kind of flown under the, no, it's not about that. It's about sort of like seeing all the tenets of his particular craft at work in these films and still try to understand why exactly they don't work and how they sort of factor into the overall trajectory of his very unique and bizarre career?
1: Yeah, it is bizarre. Talking to just friends about this project, I would say pretty much all of them, maybe all of them, just did not even know who John McTiernan was. And you rattle off the, you know, his his hot streak at the beginning of his career, and they go, "Holy shit!" And I, I think part of that is he was at his heights pre-internet pre-anical news you know before the directors of action movies were commodities right but mm-hmm. at, at least to the outside world even now i don't think just the average moviegoer is all that aware of the directors of action franchises or non sort of awards worthy type things, non auteur films, right? I'm not sure people know the James Wands or the Christopher McQuarrie's of the world, even now, right? So I don't know. It, it, it's kind of interesting that this guy who, you know, made a handful of the most iconic films of the 1990s is just, he's he's anonymous.
0: Yeah. And I think that was part of why I wanted to cover him in a series like this, because t- to me, he's at least as important in terms of like shaping the modern action film as the scott brothers as as james cameron as paul verhoven as you know even you know up through michael bay and yet he does feel a little more anonymous he does feel a little more like the journeyman and maybe it's because he had such an like nondescript personality he di- he didn't seem to like live large he wasn't a a loud presence Although ironically, he ended up, you know, going through some very, very publicly covered uh, legal issues in Mm -hmm. the in the early part of the 2000s. But there is something a little bit more modest about the man and about his reputation, despite the fact that, like you said, when you when you remind people which films he made, you know, his, his most. When you remind people that he's responsible for these incredibly iconic films, it is. Interesting how people react like oh, yeah, of course. I mean the guy who made even if die-hard was the only film he ever made I feel like he would still be worth sort of investigating and talking about his style and his contribution for sure I mean that film is that film is that important and it is that influential interesting to see that as sort of like the hot center You know in the middle of his oeuvre and to just see the way that things sort of expand backwards and forwards from there starting with nomads and eventually fizzling fizzling out we talked before we started recording about the fact that uh, rollerball and basic were the only two blind spots for the both of us on this oh no neither of us has seen nomads either yeah yeah so so both so both bookends of this series were films that were that were completely foreign to us and i'm so glad glad to have gotten the opportunity, complete this oeuvre in this manner. I mean, there's something so satisfying about, you know, having an artist's entire career in perspective, right? It's very rare, I mean, besides your Spielbergs, your Nolans, you know, your Andersons, your P- Tarantinos, I- I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't, there aren't a lot of directors for whom I have, I can call myself a completist. Kubrick, I guess, it's, you know, these guys who have modest Terrence Malick, the guys who have, you know, a dozen movies or so, that's relatively doable but I've been working through mm-hmm. a bunch of the Kurosawa stuff on the Criterion channel during this, this quarantine. And um, God, it's just daunting, man. <laughs> like that's just a lot of movies. It's a lot of time.
1: There are a few directors that pretty much everyone's seen James Cameron's. Entire yeah, oeuvre, he's right?
0: yeah, for sure. He's only made he's only made eight, nine movies or something.
1: Yeah, and you know, uh, just going back to the fame thing here, I, and we'll probably get to this later once we wrap up. But the fact that McTiernan did sort of fizzle out in his career and has been absent for you know, 15 years, probably has a lot to do with his lack of fame. If if he had had a Ridley Scott trajectory, for instance, or or, or whatever, if he had kept making quality big movies, he probably would have been more well-known in retrospect. Just the new director of Die Hard did a movie in the internet age that people are talking about. And I, 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 don't, I don't think we should shut the door on this. We don't know. Maybe this guy can have a third act. Mm-hmm. And that would be very satisfying if that could somehow happen, given the quality of his last three films.
0: Yeah. He uh, he apparently wrote multiple scripts while in prison. So I appreciate the fact that he was staying productive during his time there. And um, his next film has already been financed and has they've already got a couple of cast members in place. And we can talk about that at the end of this episode. But he has the pieces in place for the next film. I mean, obviously, the world is very complicated right now. Who knows when cameras will start rolling on anything? He clearly has no intention of sort of uh, going out to pasture just yet. He still feels like he has something to say, obviously, and I'm incredibly curious to hear what he has to say. I mean, you know, Terrence Malick did the same thing. He didn't go to prison, but he still took almost 20 years off between films, right? And he went he, to a it,
1: prison of his own mind, he man. Did.
0: He went to the... <laughs> He went out to the pris past pastoral prisons. But he st- he came back and still had something to say. And, and some of his post walkabout films are some of my favorite Malik movies. So I mean, granted, he only made two movies before he took the twenty years off. But my point is that, like, yeah, I don't I don't like the idea of completely writing this guy off. And part of my passion for wanting to um, make him our make, make him the subject of our sophomore run at this Uber thing was that uh, I'm not ready to live in a world where we don't get any more John McTiernan films. So I'm still carrying the torch.
1: Same here. Should we kick this fucker off with uh, the 13th warrior, Matt?
0: Yeah, so what's fun about this is that we actually have to do a little bit of retconning here. The, <laughs> the end of the last episode, Medicine Man, Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and the Thomas Crown Affair was of course, chronological in terms of how those films are released, but fun fact, The 13th Warrior was actually shot two years before it came out, which means it was shot about a year and a half before The Thomas Crown Affair was shot. And Mm -hmm. uh, part of the reason it took it so long to come out was because it is one of the all-time troubled productions. This movie... Depending on who you believe, depending on what your sources are and what you read, this film could very well have gone at least fifty percent over its original budget. Like the the ending budget, of this movie is somewhere between eighty and one hundred and sixty million. <laughs> Nobody seems to be able to agree on that, and uh, it only did about sixty worldwide in theaters. So this is this is an all time bomb. I mean, this kind of puts Last Action Hero to shame in that regard. Yes. such a troubled production that allegedly McTiernan didn't even, he didn't even come back for the reshoots that were eventually required. Apparently Michael Crichton directed the reshoots himself. I don't know if that's because (laughs) McTiernan was already on the set of uh, Thomas Crown Affair. I, I presume that's probably what, what happened. But yeah, it sounds like McTiernan and Michael Crichton, who of course wrote the source material, Eaters of the Dead, had a little bit of a rift and Crichton ended up taking over the production as he was one of the producers. So this movie was always considered to be like something of a mess. And what's kind of Goofy is that it actually came out three weeks after the Thomas Crown Fair. It came out August twenty seventh, 1999, and uh, I guarantee you uh, almost nobody remembers that. I actually saw it opening weekend with my friend David Schmidt. We saw it at the Crossroads Theaters in Bellevue, Washington, and uh, it's one of the only times in my life I've actually been okay with walking into a movie late. Ordinarily, I'm that jerk who, if we're missing the previews or whatever, I'm like, I don't care. We're going to, the, we're waiting for the next one. We're waiting two hours for the next one. I'm not going to miss miss the first five minutes of the movie. But we actually walked in about ten minutes late in this film, and so up until a couple of days ago, I had seen the film, but I had never seen the first five minutes of the movie before.
1: They pack a lot in those five minutes. They do actually. indeed.
0: It actually has a pretty <laughs> pretty busy prologue. I mean, I got it. I caught up with it. I, I understood what was going on. But uh, yeah, it's it's a very busy, maybe even Byzantine prologue. So what's your history with The 13th Warrior?
1: I remember it was it was a pretty robust marketing campaign for this movie. Like, I remember seeing a lot of commercials and there a lot of trailers for it coming out. And I was maybe mildly excited about it, but I never saw it in the theater. However, during those days, it was peak DVD days for my for my dad especially. And he would just, you know, he would go to the... What was that CD store in uh, Silver Platters? Silver That's Platters, what it was. I'm for no, sure. Yeah. I and he would just buy five, ten DVDs at a time, like you know, just just DVD collecting. And he picked this up once, and I think we watched it one time and that was enough. So <laughs> it's probably been, you know, nearly two decades since I've seen this movie. For good reason. Not a lot to to take away from this. It's a pretty botched effort. It's kind of just a major shrug of the shoulders type of movie. And for a you know, quote unquote historical epic, Although it's not you know, it's not really historical, but it's you know, it's, it's shot that way. Pretty simple, non compelling story that amounts to not a whole lot. For a movie that's barely over ninety minutes, it feels a lot longer than that. It's just not not a not a fun movie and it's not a surprise that no one wouldn't saw it.
0: Yeah, it feels relatively insubstantial. I, I must say I was um Heartened when I looked at the homework that would be required for this episode and realized that all three of these films are in the 90-ish, 95-ish minute range. That was a that, huge... I that had huge the movie. exact
1: same uh, feeling. It was, it was like, yeah, okay, I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> all right, so let's... Be- because when you think of 13th War, you're like, this movie, these types of movies are typically two and a half hours. Right? Oh, yeah. Two yeah. and a half, three hours.
0: Epic in scope and usually in running time. And uh, I bet you the first couple cuts of this film probably were... Although, you know, it sounds like they had to go back and reshoot so much stuff. Maybe they just didn't even have enough footage to put together a two-hour movie. So let's briefly do a little Knudsen's Context Corner and talk about Antonio Banderas. So, he's a guy we haven't really covered very much. We haven't talked about too many of his films, and He's a guy I'm a, I've am actually always been a big fan of. First time I ever saw an Antonio Banderas movie was a movie called Miami Rhapsody with um, mm-hmm. Sarah Jessica Parker, which I saw on a plane. And uh, it was back in the days before they would like edit the movies on planes. So I remember thinking to myself, oh, this movie's kind of, this movie's a little salacious <laughs> for my, you know, 11 year old <laughs> eyes or whatever it was. We'll just do his like post-Almodovar collaborations. Okay. Basically his first big thing is, his first big sort of breakout is the Mambo Kings with um, Armando Sante in 1992. And then he rattles mm-hmm. off Philadelphia, Interview with the Vampire, the aforementioned Miami Rhapsody, Desperado, which is obviously a big deal. Four Rooms with where he works with Tarantino, Assassins, one of the all-time great uh, Seattle movies. Never talk <laughs> to strangers. Too much Evita, and then The Mask of Zorro, which might be my favorite Antonio Banderas movie. Okay, I saw Pain and Glory last year, which he's wonderful in. That uh, probably his best performance, and uh, he certainly deserved to get Oscar nominated for it. Maybe even deserve, deserved to win. But I think if I could only watch one Antonio Banderas movie again. Uh, It would definitely be The Mask of Zorro. Unfortunately, that's the last movie he makes before The 13th Warrior. He kind of gets lost after that. From there on, if you look at his filmography, it's pretty patchy. Play It to the Bone, Spy Kids, Original Sin, Femme Fatale with with Rebecca Romaine, who we'll talk about in a few minutes here. <laughs> Spy Kids 2, Frida, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Shrek, uh, then he gets into the Shrek world, then he does a Zorro uh, sequel and he's just kind of lost for most of the 2000s. He works with Woody Allen, keeps, keeps doing, you know, th- honestly the thing that sort of brought him back was when he started working with his buddy Almodovar again in The Skin I Live In in 2011 and that's when he, and then he works with Soderbergh and, and that's when he starts to kind of claw his way back into the light. But I really feel like the 13th Warrior is the beginning of a very strange and inauspicious period for him. Um, yeah. All that being said, I think he's perfectly charming in this movie. I think he's actually pretty well cast and he seems kind of game. I mean, that's it's an insubstantial movie and it's an insubstantial lead character. Apparently it's a real guy. I mean, you, you mentioned that... Uh, this is, you know, not necessarily a true story, but the guy he's playing is based on a real a real character.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, a, according to Wikipedia, a loose retelling of the tale of Beowulf combined with this actual guy's historical account of the Volga Viking. So, you know, it's one of Michael Crichton's books, lesser one books. of his lesser known <laughs> yes. books. And, one of his know, earliest th- books,
0: th- actually. Yeah,
1: and, and this is a time where Michael Crichton can do whatever the fuck he wants, right? Jurassic Park has happened. He's had a lot of his books turn into movies. And, uh, you yeah, know, he's, he's got a ton of out so you know if you're wondering why this movie got the budget it did you know you attach michael Crichton and john mctiernan at this at this juncture and you're, you're gonna you the money's gonna pour in yeah i agree with you antonio Medeiros is fine but if you just look at the plot of this movie historical epics tend to be kind of sprawling a lot of subplots big in scope but this movie is doesn't have a ton of plot to be honest mm-hmm. it's pretty straightforward and kind of boring, straightforward. I, I've never read *Eaters of the Dead*, which is the novel this movie's based on. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there's more to the story here. But you know, it's a little surprising that all these talented people at, at this point in their career would sign up for something that you know I, I can't imagine looked all that good on paper.
0: I think I think an argument can be made that in uh, 1997, you know, whatever 96, whenever they greenlit this film, that Michael Crichton was actually a bigger name than John McTiernan was. Um, and oh, that that definitely. might have something yeah, to do yeah. with how, how the kind of why he had the sort of clout to be able to basically take over the movie because yeah after Jurassic Park then they do Congo and Sphere and you know uh, Lost World obviously
1: and Braveheart has just come out so like you can pitch this as the Viking Braveheart if you want right it,
0: it seems to me and they'd already made the Terminal Man and the Great Train Robbery into movies so and the Andromeda Strain so. It, it seems like it probably was a situation where after Jurassic Park, they you know if they hadn't already, they were just buying up. Everybody was just buying up any. Crichton properties that were still, because I mean, this guy was, after Jurassic Park, it seemed like this guy was just going to be, you know, this guy had a license to print money with all of his very Mm -hmm. filmable books, you know, very pulpy, easily digestible, you know, sort of semi-sci-fi books. So they probably bought up Eaters of the Dead at some point, or like, well, at some point, you know, eventually we'll get around to making this one. And apparently it bounced around to a bunch of different directors. Eventually McTiernan gets a hold of it. The fact that they Went into production with a book called Eaters of the Dead. Like, even me, who was a, I was a totally a Crichton nerd in the 90s. Like, I wasn't a Grisham guy. I wasn't really a Tom Clancy guy, but I was definitely a Michael Crichton guy. And so the fact yeah. that they were going to make a book, I hadn't read Eaters of the Dead at the time, but I was like, wow, they're really going to make that into a movie. And <laughs> I have to say, it's strange to me that they went into production with that title. And I am not surprised at all they eventually decided on a different title. 13th Warrior is a very innocuous, kind of boring title, but it's certainly a much more ma- marketable title than Eaters of the Dead is, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Just just let me read this off to you. These are the movies in the nineties based on Crichton novels. Jurassic Park ninety three, Disclosure ninety four, Congo ninety five. Crichton co-wrote the screenplay for Twister, I didn't know that in ninety six. Oh right. Yeah. Lost World Jurassic Park ninety seven, Sphere in ninety eight, and then Thirteenth Warrior in ninety nine.
0: That's uh that's pretty crazy for a novelist. And then they made Timeline. It looks like Timeline came out in 99 as well. Wow. Oh, no, the book. The book came out in 99. Yeah, Yeah. 2003. Yeah, book came out in 99. So that's... And then, like I said, The Andromeda Strain and uh, The Terminal Man had already been made into movies. So it it was kind of unprecedented how hot he was. I mean, I guess you could say the same thing about Grisham at that point. But yeah, it seems obvious that they would eventually get around to Eaters of the Dead, which they did. And this is a big full throated period piece about Vikings <laughs> and there's gonna be big sprawling action sequences and cannibals and period detail and it's it's just it's a gonna be a big Endeavor, which I'm sure they knew, and it, and McTiernan was probably the kind of guy who was equal to that sort of task. He had made big movies up to this point. But mm-hmm. it seems like they just completely got lost in the woods and I can't quite figure out if it's the source material that's the issue, if it was the approach, if it was just a weak leading man. I, I, I Why does this movie not work? Because all the pieces theoretically are there, right?
1: Yeah, I just don't think the story's that compelling. I okay. mean, you start with, with this pretty gimmicky setup, right? The 13th Warrior, like this Viking uh, suit says uh, they need 13 warriors, but the 13th warrior cannot be a viking, mm-hmm. so he gets recruited into this Viking warrior club.
0: It's kind of a cute uh, scene. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's fine. It's a cute little inciting incident scene.
1: And then from there it's just kind of straightforward, you know, Viking warrior shit, I guess, right? And there's a lot of mystical mumbo jumbo. A lot of <laughs> a lot of, you know, this is fated mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then they their main foes. You just have to cut off the head of the snake and it's there's some like it delves a little bit into sort of mythical territory but doesn't go all the way. I I don't know. It's just kind of like I said, it's a struggle of the shoulders and I just came away from it being pretty bored. And like you said, you know, maybe it looks on paper if you zoom out far enough that this makes sense and it should be a fun movie, but it's it's not. And like the costumes are good, the the cinematography's fine, it's directed fine. Yeah, it just doesn't work.
0: Yeah, it doesn't really work. It's pretty darn boring. Uh, The thing is that it's not badly directed. And that was one of the things that I came away from this particular chapter of our series with is that even though it's not a good movie and it's not particularly well written and the uh, protagonist is not very interesting and it's all kind of thin, it's still very watchable. You know, like the the action sequences are still very kind of logical and everything kind of fits together the way that it's supposed to. It doesn't work and I'm trying to put my finger on it, but it doesn't really have anything to do with McTiernan's direction. Um, Although apparently McTiernan's cut did not even include the final, the climactic battle sequence. I think McTiernan's cut ended after the cave, which I have a hard time. Interesting. Hard time imagining. But Yeah, apparently that whole last thing was was all Crichton, and that's the action scene that I feel worked, uh, the one action scene that I think kind of doesn't work, but the one, like, the centerpiece action scene, the one-two punch of, like, the big nighttime action scene with Fire Serpent, which I think is pretty cool, when all the, when all the Eaters of the Dead come down through the mist, and they've, they form this big serpent with their torches, it's just Mm -hmm. a great, just bravura action sequence, and then all the stuff in the cave is really intense, and really violent, and really kind of fun, and moody, and atmospheric, and... And then when they're when they have to like swim to get out of the cave, all that stuff works pretty darn well. And then it kind of just fizzles and kind of coasts to a stop.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just if you don't care about the characters that much, it's just not going to work. Yeah, but and you're right; it is directed well and shit. You know, I would watch hours of Viking long ships emerging from the mist. I know you're kind you know?
0: of uh, you're, you're. This is sort <laughs> of on brand for you. This is. And did you hear that uh, Robert Eggers was just about to the guy who made uh, The Lighthouse and uh, the, yeah. the Witch. He was just about ready to start directing. He was about to begin production on a movie called The Northmen. Yeah. Uh, with uh, William Dafoe, Ani Taylor-Joy, and both of the Skarsgård brothers.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited I, for this. That's right up
0: your alley. Um, unfortunately, yeah. we may not get to see that for a while. Yeah, this this is a movie of great faces, you know. In addition to Banderas, the entire the other twelve warriors, um, mm-hmm. they're a little bit interchangeable, but they all they're all legit, right? Like I buy all of them. They're all fun. They're all bearded. <laughs> they're very... yeah. They're
1: all they're all very Norwegian. I I do <laughs> like that. Yeah. I also I also like the few scenes we get with with Omar Sharif. Yeah. that's kind of fun at the beginning.
0: Yeah, Omar Sharif has nothing but bad things to say about this movie. He was yeah, very exactly. vocal. He actually like. Into, it made him quit acting. It made him retire for like <laughs> five years because he had such an unpleasant experience, which is strange because he has a very small role. He's totally delightful, and all of his scenes are totally fine. I have a hard time imagining wh- why he had such an unpleasant experience if if he stepped back and watched the film was like, oh, that's a pretty bad movie. And I'm not very proud to be in a bad movie, but he's been vocal about the fact that he, he kind of had bad things to say about McTiernan and that it was just unpleasant and badly written. And I was surprised how angry he was about this movie because I think he's quite wonderful you know, in it.
1: Yeah, I bet he had to do some reshoots and probably some of his stuff got cut out. Sure. And, you know, the guilt of taking a big paycheck for doing a piece of shit probably <laughs> probably hurt that proud man. And he had some bridge to play, you
0: know? Yeah, fair enough. Probably the best scene in this movie, and it certainly was the most memorable. Like I said, I'd only seen it once in the theater 20 years ago, but this is the scene that that um, stuck out for me, and part of it's because it reminded me so much of a similar scene in The Hunt for Red October, which is the scene where Banderas is sitting on the boat of the ship and he teaches himself Norwegian by listening to the to the Vikings talk for hours and hours, which is next level bullshit. But it's a total, it's a really, it's a really fun idea, and it just reinforces uh, McTiernan's fascination with language. Right?
1: It's good. It's I don't know. I mean, it is bullshit. It's a funny scene around the campfire where he overhears them talking, and he talks back to them, and they're like, where did you learn? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are bits and pieces, and, wait, it's handsomely filmed. Of course it is. It's it's John McTiernan. At the end of the day, it just amounts to nothing. And, you know, I, I think we can analyze it all we want, but if, if you just don't have compelling characters or a compelling story... You're gonna be DOA.
0: Just a couple of notes here. Uh, as I said, uh, 62 million dollar worldwide box office on a somewhere between 80 and 160 million dollar budget. Nobody seems to be able to agree on it. 33 uh, percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Graham Revell was uh, uh, wrote the uh, original score for this film, and uh, even included the great Lisa Gerard in that score which would have predated The Insider by a couple of months and predated Gladiator by about a year. So mm-hmm. um, I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I certainly would love to. That's got to be sitting on a hard drive somewhere. I would love to hear that. But Crichton apparently rejected it, hired his buddy Jerry Goldsmith, which is a totally, perfectly fine score. I just, I would, as a Lisa Girard super fan, I would love to hear what Graham Ravel's soundtrack sounded like. So this looks like pretty much the most miserable shoot ever, Right. Like mm-hmm. it's constantly raining. Everybody's constantly muddy and bloody. It was all shot up in uh, British Columbia. And some of the some of the vistas are truly like breathtakingly beautiful. And you forget like, oh, yeah, that's right. There's there's still parts of Canada. They're just incredibly rugged.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So it, it just looks like one of those shoots where they're, you know, everybody's got an axe in their hand. Everybody's streaked with mud and blood. Just I just look at it. I'm like, oh, that looks so cold and miserable. <laughs> Uh, Mm -hmm. But legit at the same time one of the Viking ships used in the movie is now in the Norwegian pavilion in the Epcot Center uh, in Epcot Center at Walt Disney World where it is used as a playground for kids. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. <laughs> kind of fun and uh the character herger played by Dennis storehol uh, almost drowned during the swimming section Antonio Banderas jumped in the water and pulled Dennis out and uh, saved his life Antonio Banderas is a goddamn hero that's uh cool that's all I got yeah this is <laughs> probably a movie I'll never watch again <laughs> but but you know it's 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 an important text in the uh, in the man's oeuvre, for sure
1: all right Matt let's move on to a movie called Rollerball. A few years after the one-two punch of Thomas Crown Affair and 13th Warrior, Rollerball, remake of the James Caan, you know, quote unquote classic. I'd never seen this movie until a couple nights ago. Boy, howdy, holy shit, was this an experience. I am so glad I got to watch this movie. Oh, good. This is legitimately one of the worst films I've
0: ever seen. (laughs) 3% on Rotten Tomatoes.
1: I had no idea how bad this movie Movie was going to be. And it is an absolute delightful disaster. I can't believe it exists frankly. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things to talk about here. John McTiernan was clearly going through some shit in his life. There's divorces, there's uh, wiretapping, there's lying to the FBI, there's you know sitting on the precipice of going to jail in a few years. This guy was not thinking straight at this point in his life and his career. And I cannot believe the guy who made Die Hard made this movie.
0: Yeah, it's pretty unprecedented. I'm glad you had that experience with it because my experience was not quite as positive as yours. I had I had never seen it up until a couple days ago I watched the original, I had never seen the original either. So I watched Norman Jewison's original Rollerball from uh, 1975, I believe. And I really enjoyed it and found it quite provocative and quite interesting and and thought it was one of James Conn's more interesting performances. And thought to myself, yeah, of course, let's remake that. Why not? It's it's totally obvious that they would have, you know, it it seems inevitable they would have remade it. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised it took him that long to remake it. I was like, how can this not work? How can this not be campy fun? You know, even if it's terrible, just with this premise and all the dystopian sci-fi stuff and, you know, LL Cool J, like, how is this not going to work? I got to say, I didn't find this to be fun at all. I found it to be actually pretty unpleasant. (laughs) And maybe I was just watching in the wrong mindset. You know, you got to watch it with some friends. I watched it Dead Sober as well, which is probably a mistake. Definitely a mistake, Mostly it made me kind of sad because it was kind of representing the turn because... You really could look at the Thirteenth Warrior as kind of like a little bit of a of a novelty and an anomaly because it technically was made before the Thomas Crown Affair. So it's like yeah, Thirteenth Warrior. That was an experiment. That was a thing he wanted to try to make his Viking movie. It didn't really work. Went over budget. Michael Crichton took over. But then he got to make the Thomas Crown Affair. and Everybody loves that movie. And it's and it's sexy and it's wonderful and it's charming. So that's kind of where I am with McTiernan up to this point. And then to me, Rollerball is just like oh boy, like have I backed the wrong horse? Like what's what's going on here? Like is this? I had a sort of like an existential crisis watching the film that being said I don't think it's badly directed this is a terrible movie but I don't really think it's necessarily so much McTiernan's fault I mean it's a terrible script and everybody's miscast, and everything pretty much goes wrong, and it really, really, really deteriorates in the third act, for sure. But I would like to try to find a little bit of a silver lining here in terms of what McTiernan does well. This is McTiernan's second Norman Jewison remake, right? Thomas Crown Affair and Rollerball. And the original Rollerball is, is quite interesting. It's worth your time. It's much, much slower than this. It's much more cerebral. It's much more dystopian. It leans way more into the sci-fi stuff. Like, the original Rollerball is set decades in the future in terms of when it was set. This one was uh, came out in 2002 and apparently takes place in 2005. So yeah. it's pretty much a contemporaneous deal, right? I mean, the opening scene in San Francisco, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what San Francisco looks like today. We're not trying to make this mm-hmm. look like the dystopian future. But pretty much nothing works from the word go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I guess you could say it's directed fine. I blame McTiernan for directing the script, for being okay with directing the script. Especially because
0: McTiernan apparently futzed with the original script quite a bit. He doesn't have any writing credit, but uh, if you read into the lore, if you read into the history of this movie, you know, obviously they'd been wanting to make a remake for many years. It had gone through multiple writers. The script that that they'd come up with, which was apparently... Pretty respected at the time. Apparently, McTiernan basically threw it out and started from scratch and really leaned into his worst impulse, which was to make sure we had more rollerball, more action, more violence, more of every. Whereas in the original one, I think there's only really three matches. I think the entire film is, is sort of structured around three rollerball games. Uh, Which is the right move because you want to be anticipating this, right? As opposed to McTiernan's approach here is just like, oh, let's just throw as many balls at you as we possibly can, which is a, a total mistake.
1: Let me ask you this about the original Rollerball. Does the game make any more sense? Than it does here.
0: No, it's pre- they're pretty consistent with the original as far as the game is concerned. They, they've they've messed with the with the rink a little bit with the the rollerball okay. arena. <laughs> they made it sure. a little more serpentine, and now when you throw a ball into the um, goal, it it explodes into flames. That's that's new. That wasn't in the original. But other than that, uh, no, they don't really explain too much about the game. Except for the fact that you got to put the ball in the in the goal, that's pretty much all they explain in the original one.
1: Yeah, the game doesn't make any sense. It makes less sense than Quidditch, which is hard to do. <laughs> Good call. And, and let me just explain something to you. There is an opening scene where they're filming a race in San Francisco on like it's it's basically like skeleton skateboard, right? Yeah, like they're street sort luge. Street luge, yeah. Chris Klein manages to not die which apparently makes him worthy of becoming a rollerball star. LL Cool J saves him, and he decides, instead of being arrested at his home for illegally street lugeing, uh, <laughs> to go and play rollerball, which he has never played before, and I guess he's an old NHL star or whatever.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I, I think that the prologue might be my favorite scene in the movie. The street luge stuff in San Francisco is kind of a fun idea, and the way McTiernan directs it, is pretty darn thrilling like when he's going underneath you know he's going under the wheels of of Mack trucks and stuff and he's trying to not run over kids and the cops are after him I mean watching that I was like oh I, I wish we'd had like a um like a sequel to Airborne or something right that was directed by John McTiernan that was all about street losing mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> take it from your yeah, you don't I agree suppose. but, <laughs> but uh, I actually kind of like the opening scene and I also thought to myself why do we start with Chris Klein accepting the money or he's like negotiating with the street luge guys? And, and I guess these street luge guys, they're capturing the footage for some sort of like X Games channel or something. They're not particularly clear about that. But wouldn't it be more fun if the movie just like hard cut from credits, like straight into a POV from the street luge going down Market Street or something in San Francisco, as opposed to, yeah. I mean, all that bullshit beforehand is really perfunctory and, and quite dull and then once they start losing it gets really fun so to me that would have been a much more Exciting! Since since you're you know since you're basically structuring this movie to be you know balls to the wall action movie that never slows down, why not just start start when you're already on the wheels? I don't. To me, that that just seemed like a strange move, especially since we're always talking about how McTiernan loves to hit the ground running. This was a situation where he decided not to do that. And I think it was a mistake.
1: I don't know. There's just so little substance to this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are like eight scenes in this movie. It's crazy. They have this lose scene and then cut smash cut to one of my favorite title cards ever. It's like Central <laughs> Asia four months later
0: (laughs) i do appreciate the fact that this movie mostly takes place around central asia which is a part of the world that rarely gets cinematic treatment kyrgyzstan and stuff you really see movies set there so i appreciated that
1: (laughs) yeah i suppose that's fun but then it cuts directly to a 25 minute or so rollerball match
0: which is consistent with the original that's how the the original starts with a match and it is about that long it's pretty epic
1: yeah it's crazy but the game doesn't make much sense. It seems like only one team gets a motorcycle. I don't get a feel for the rules or any strategy, and that <laughs> continues on through the whole movie, right? Uh-huh. And Chris Klein is good, but we don't really understand why he's good. But yeah. apparently he's the best rollerballer in the world. And they keep going back to this conceit where Jean Renault as the you know, mustache-twirling bad guy who <laughs> runs runs rollerball
0: Inc or whatever Yeah, at least one person's having fun in this movie right
1: yeah exactly he keeps looking to the screen that's giving him live ratings updates love that uh, which is hilarious the idea that something could happen in a game and immediately more people would tune
0: in <laughs> yes. somehow i think it's called i wrote this down it's called global instant rating there's like a <laughs> yeah gl- <laughs> What's it's like it a like, scoreboard okay. in his little in his evil booth that says global Instagram.
1: I mean, come on, guys. Come up with a better <laughs> name for this thing than global instant rating but they didn't have twitter back then where people like something happened in the game and then thousands and thousands of people were calling their relatives to say you have to tune in anyway um just one of many stupid things going on in this movie again like he's he's a hotshot, best rollerball player in central asia he's living the high life and then this violent game someone gets hurt two-thirds through the movie decides that he has to escape it right then and there
0: yeah, it's pretty hard to believe that nobody's gotten hurt by this point <laughs>
1: Right. I just advise everyone to watch the movie because the script is one of the worst things I've've ever witnessed. like I said there's like eight scenes in this movie and then there's this 25 minute rollerball scene. there's a 20 minute chase scene and then there's a you know climactic 25 30 minute rollerball slash murder scene. At the end of the movie, and that's about it. And there's no room for any reasonable story going on here. And I just wonder if McTiernan, at some point, threw his hands in there like this: is This thing's dead. There's no story to tell here. We fucked this up, so might as well just make it one long action scene, as nonsensical as that is.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, it sounds like this was another troubled production. Not crazy expensive, but it sounds like there was multiple reshoots and uh, a lot of a lot of different cooks in the kitchen on this one. This one of the producers in this movie was a guy named Charles. Roven who has gone on to he's Mm -hmm. probably best known now as as being the uh, the DC guy like he produced Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy and he's since produced Man of Steel uh, you know (laughs) BVS, <laughs> Dawn of Justice, uh, Justice League, Wonder Woman, yada, yada. Just say the extended DC, Sorry, the extended DC, DC universe. Uh, yeah. Birds of Prey. So he and Nolan, or he and Nolan, he and McTiernan did not exactly see eye to eye on this project. And that is one of the things that gave rise to Nolan's legal issues. Mm. So it seems like there was a lot creative headbutting going on in this film. Uh, it all kind of starts with how incredibly miscast Chris Klein is. Uh, oh, this was another movie that also got shot, pushed back, and then reshot, and then pushed back, and then reshot. So uh, Chris Klein is pretty bad in this movie. You kind of see why he never really went on to become a legitimate movie star. In the original film, James Caan, he plays the same the same character, John, uh, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very stoic. He's very conflicted. He's a very reluctant hero. He ends up sort of inadvertently becoming a leader for the resistance or whatever. But you can tell that he's constantly conflicted about everything that's going on around him. And he eventually has to be drawn into the thing. He's not proactive about it necessarily, which makes him a more compelling and interesting kind of Campbellian hero. In this one, Chris Klein's just kind of like a cocky, vacuous prick from the beginning, right? <laughs> this just yes. really feels like, like these guys didn't even bother um, gesturing towards the Joseph Campbell Side of things. This is written by um, by a couple of guys. Uh, Larry Ferguson, who wrote uh, one of the writers of *Hunter for Red October*, actually, but also uh, *Alien 3*, *Highlander*, *Maximum Risk*, and then a guy named John Pogue, uh, probably most famous for writing *The Skulls*, *U.S. Marshals*. Mm -hmm. So, not exactly, not exactly your (laughs) A-team working here. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's like they're just learning all the wrong lessons from the original movie and from the source material. And if if McTiernan actually managed to, if his true intention here is to be like, fuck it, we're going balls to the wall. This is going to just be a fucking crazy camp classic. We're just there's just going to be nudity and violence, and this movie's never going to stop. And you're not even going to believe what you're looking at. Like if you if he really had the courage of his convictions here, I could see this thing going gloriously over the top and becoming, you know, some sort of like Running Man uh, level camp classic mad max beyond thunderdome something like that like that that's really i feel that would have been the that would have been the lane here Unfortunately, they never really commit to that. So it ends up becoming sort of like halfway between the interesting introspective fight the power message of the of the original dystopian science fiction film and then something sort of in the middle on its way to The Running Man. You know, this movie also seems like it wants to kind of gesture at Starship Troopers, you know, there's like the there's the coed, you know, coed locker room stuff like that, but it never really gets as sure. like trashy I mean, it, it's clear that it was shot as a rated film, and then they ended up cutting it down to a PG-13 movie. And there's actually quite a bit of nudity for a PG-13 movie.
1: One of the funniest introductory scenes ever is Rebecca Romaine's formal introduction while weightlifting topless, which <laughs> I can't imagine anyone has ever done for any reason it seems like a safety concern first <laughs> off so why why would you do that and the fact that she's uh she wears a mask because she's
0: horribly disfigured
1: she's terribly disfigured she has a very faint scar on her face but still looks like rebecca romaine
0: apparently that was um apparently that was a request on her part that if they were going to force her to get naked that she was going to need to have that uh, ridiculous scar across her face you know, just to kind of temper <laughs> okay. things. Um, she, she's coming. So if they shot this movie in like 2000, 2001 and she's coming right off of, um, the first X-Men film. So at this point she's still really thought of as, as the body, right? I mean, not that she's necessarily yeah. thought of as a thespian now, but at the, at that time it was like, she is, she's going to be, let's just say, um, cast for her physicality.
1: Yeah. And that would happen later in Femme Fatale too. Oh yeah. Speaking of Banderas. I don't think she's the worst actress in the world, especially for X models, but man, giving her some shitty russian accent (laughs) and uh, a terrible character was not the right way to go and going back to chris klein i mean i don't know if he's miscast because he he just doesn't have a character i think he's well he's also just miscast in anything where he's not playing a dope he's just not a good actor and i think the world kind of realized that after this movie it's unfortunate but i don't think anyone really would have would have saved it in the leading role here um and ll cool j isn't given a whole lot to work with and he's He's whatever.
0: At what point, um, L. O. Cool? At one point, Chris Klein mentions that uh, you know L. O. Cool J was always looking out for him in high school. Uh, L. O. Cool J is eleven years older than Chris Klein.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. There's a second act uh, chase scene in the dark that's shot entirely in night vision (laughs) for some reason, which just practically, you know, just doesn't make sense, right? We're not seeing, it's not a POV night vision shot. It's just literally shot in night vision. For some it's reason, just, it goes on for fucking ever. <laughs> it's
0: just what you call a choice. It is just a choice. It is a choice,
1: and uh, I wonder if that was a budgetary concern or something, just to give it some sort of look when they didn't want to make it some sort of big, high-priced chase. But it doesn't doesn't particularly work, and the reason for the chase doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, this guy seemed to have some free will. They could have just gone back home and probably waltzed to the airport and left. But they decided to do some crazy escape across the uh, Russia. Border. Ella Cool J eventually gets sniped down at the last second. Amazing, it's, amazing. It's moment. all bizarre. Yeah, it's an amazing, very emotional <laughs> moment, of course. Chris Klein decides he's going to go back and still compete because otherwise he'll be banished to work in the salt mines, I guess. Chris Klein, by not being killed in the climactic game, manages to make the audience aware of the exploitative, I don't know, evil of the game of rollerball and incites a on-the-spot revolution in the matter of moments. It, it, it's all very bizarre and makes no sense. The idea that people would watch this violent game and then all of a sudden have an epiphany because someone doesn't die, that this is a game that, I don't know, they're feeling oppressed by it. Like, they they go outside and they, you know, flip over cars and it's a baffling movie. It's a script that I cannot believe Got Greenland. I cannot believe McTiernan okayed it. I can't believe he would change it to this, whatever it was to this. It is an out-and-out disaster, and it's a fun movie to watch while drinking with your friends and make fun of.
0: Yeah, it's his worst movie with a bullet, and the the last 15 minutes or so are just abysmal. Like... I can defend mm-hmm. most of the film in terms of um, Tiernan's directorial approach or his, you know, competence in terms of directing action sequences. It just feels like he was just drunk for the last <laughs> Presuming they were shooting in in order, which obviously they weren't, but it just—it's like somebody else just finished off the end of the movie. Like he just finally gave up or something. Like it goes so wildly. I was going to say over the top, but that would that would suggest that it gets like fun or wacky or goofy. It just gets it just gets bad. It just gets straight up bad. It is technically consistent with the original. Um, the original, and I can't speak to the source material, the the book that both of these are based on. But in the original film, they they do the same thing. They put uh, they put Jonathan out there and they send the other team to kill him and he ends up fighting off every single one of them and then at the end he finally goes and makes one last goal and wins the game and then the and then the crowd starts starts chanting Jonathan. And you get the impression that he Mm -hmm. has now he's activated this revolution and that, yes, maybe people are going to go outside and flip cop cars or whatever. But the movie has these has the smarts and the restraint to cut to credits before anything like that happens. It's just like he did Mm -hmm. it. He won. He survived he he's the people's champion he he gained their respect he's activated them to potentially push back against the man and that that's it our story's done this one decides it wants to go outside and flip cop cars but it kind of does it in a really cheap way like you look at it and you're like yeah. it <laughs> they just push an antenna off of like <laughs> off of like a, a news van or something oh and then isn't the last isn't literally the last shot of the film a, a, a sex joke Like a joke about, I can't wait to get you home to my bed or something like that. She's like, let's go to the hospital. And then after that, let's go to my bed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's uh, it's it's so bad. Oh, it's bad. At least Jean Reno's having some fun in he this is, movie with a nothing. He's part. got a
0: delightful, um, a delightfully evil fur coat on, and he and he gets to slap uh, what's his name, Naveen, Naveen Andrews around.
1: Yeah, I was I was literally just about to say my favorite scene in the movie is him open-handed slapping Naveen Andrews. <laughs> you know, I think we should move on. Yeah, I
0: just, just real quick, I got a couple notes here. This movie really yeah. makes me miss American Gladiators. I loved American Gladiators yeah. so much. They tried to bring it back briefly, and I think it's sort of more. Into a Amer- um, ninja warrior or whatever, but uh, I miss I miss American gladiators. So Slipknot makes a makes a cameo in this film, which uh, which I think is pretty much on brand. Yeah, so does Pink. Pink shows up. Uh, yeah, there's a very one of the stronger and smarter aspects of this near future uh, sci-fi universe is that they have uh, live bands playing during these rollerball matches, which is a great a great conceit. I love it.
1: The soundtrack includes such luminaries as Pod, Slipknot, Rob Zombie, Godsmack. Fear Factory and Who Stank. <laughs> What's 2002 for you?
0: At one point, L.O. Cool J is getting interviewed by a reporter, and she says, "Is it true that your mother is a crack whore?" <laughs> just, <Yeah>. just just <laughs> stood out to me for some reason. Oh, remember the Metallica guy? The I think he's like a um, he's a running back or something from uh, Any Given Sunday. He's the guy in Any Given Sunday who's got like the mutton chops. And he's really into Metallica. And at one point, he's in the he's in the shower, and they throw a crocodile in or an alligator or something. Yeah, he's the he, yeah. yeah he's the guy who says Hetfield is God. He's basically playing the same <laughs> character in this movie, which I found kind of delightful. And their coach is uh, Coach Olga. There's just this old Russian woman who just stands in the in their dugout or whatever. No backstory, you know? but she's she's, she's there. Just an old Russian woman who they all seem to really respect. It's
1: it's like it's like this movie is missing an hour of of footage, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's like it was it. edited by a 12-year-old to, to make the best movie for, for an idiot, like, preteen.
0: It's made for 15-year-old boys. That's what, I mean, that's basically what Roger Ebert said when he when he reviewed it, is that this movie, you know, right down to the topless Rebecca Romijn Stamos. It's, it's aimed right at 15-year-old boys. I don't know how this movie got past us. I didn't see it in college. That seemed like the sort of thing we would have done, you know, got drunk on a Friday night and gone to the bridge to see this. 2002 would have been right in our wheelhouse, but it just, it snuck past me. I don't know how I missed it. Now we come to his final no let's call it this his most recent film there which came out <laughs> which came out on april 3rd 2003 20 years ago this month i'm sorry 17 years ago this mm-hmm. month and this is another movie that just got past me and i don't know how i missed it all these years it was you know when the when Rollerball came out everybody said oh that movie is a fucking piece of shit and it's a disaster when basic came out uh, a week after basic came out everybody just said there was a movie called basic I mean that's how that's how quickly this thing faded from our consciousness. Nobody has talked about this movie in seventeen years. It's the John Travolta, Sam Jackson reunion. It is, and that's how they sold it. And that was supposed to be a pretty big deal. And I think right after it came out, it got people started. People, you know, the three people who saw it started leaking the fact that they don't really have any scenes together. And maybe that uh, <laughs> maybe that took the air out of the balloon. We can get to the one scene they do have together. This movie is kind of it's it's the sort of kind of trashy comfort food. That I feel like I should have sought out over the course of the last seventeen years. Like, I like these kinds of movies, you know, the the military police sort of procedural thrillers, the general's daughter, rules of engagement, a Few Good Men is obviously a little more of a highfalutin version of this. I don't know, Hearts War, Courage Under Fire. I mean that that show Jag, right? Yeah. It just seems like something that I should have accidentally caught on on uh, you know, TNT or Spike TV over the years. Just mm-hmm. never Happened for me and I literally like sat in bed and watched this movie this morning on my laptop and I thought it was Really really fun. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed this movie. I thought it was trashy pulpy Stupid uh ridiculous fun uh, that never takes itself too seriously And I gotta say I don't think this is one of his worst movies I might put this somewhere in the middle actually I I, I this movie There's a lot of things that don't work, but there's a lot of things that are that I found to be quite pleasurable uh, not least of which is the fact that McTiernan seems to actually be kind of enjoying himself here. Like he clearly, he clearly just wants to make something that's kind of trashy and stupid, but is you know diverting. And the word I kept coming, coming to while watching this movie, like this movie is really competent. <laughs> like this movie is kind of doing pretty much everything right. And the issues that it has, I would, I would definitely say, are screenwriter James Vanderbilt's fault quote-unquote, fault. Not necessarily McTiernan's fault.
1: Uh, Matt, yeah. fuck you. I hate to do this, but I 100% agree with
0: you. I, <laughs> We're so compatible.
1: I was strapping in to just, you know, see an absolute dumb. I, I was
0: ready for it. I was like, all right, here we go. Rollerball part two. This is going to be tough. But I thought it was
1: But this fun. is this is a well-made, extremely silly, yes. fun movie. I mean, it's just like a poor man's pulpy, A Few Good yeah. Men. I, I mean, I'll have to track it, but this seems like the you know, the last time maybe that Travolta was charming and enjoyable. Travolta's good in this movie. He is. He's,
0: he's fun. He's quite fun. I mean, this is, I mean, he's still riding relatively high at this point. We're I think we're still pre-Battleship Earth at this point, aren't we, with Travolta? Let me, yeah, little Yeah, do that. a little research. But I mean, you know, we're obviously almost a decade removed from Pulp Fiction by this point, but we're only a couple years off of, um, you know, Broken Arrow and Face Off. Well, I guess we're about six, mm-hmm. six seven years off of that. But Battlefield Earth was
1: 2000.
0: So. Oh, this is post Battlefield Earth. Okay. All right, fair enough, but this, you know, this is kind of like he had made The General's Daughter as well, which I think also came out in 99. Um so he was still making relatively respectable quote-unquote respectable stuff like this at this point uh this is before he went off the rails again he, he has a relatively believable chemistry with um with connie nielsen
1: and connie nielsen's accent whatever oh boy is.
0: connie nielsen what is, what is she doing is, is that midwestern is that southern connie nielsen is a uh, danish she's a danish actress what the hell is she doing here she's
1: doing southern? some scenes she's doing southern some scenes she's doing a danish Person speaking, English. <laughs> In some scenes it seems Midwest, but it's not. It's we not can get good. to Connie
0: Nielsen in a minute, but um, in terms of apparently uh, McTiernan had to uh, direct Connie Nielsen and John Travolta to tone down the sexual tension because there was apparently just so much sexual chemistry. You know, oh. Travolta was still such a sexual <laughs> dynamo in 2003, that, but he's introduced in a shower. He's he's introduced swigging from the Jack Daniels bottle in the shower, and uh, he's just a kind of a swinging dick jerk and he just strides into this movie and uh yeah he's just fucking engaging
1: he's a, he's a master interrogator and that's what the first you know 45 minutes of this movie is is him showing off his interrogation skills which he's good at and it's all charming and it fun. is and there's
0: a great reveal when he reveals that he's actually a former ranger and he's a dea guy so like okay this guy is he was a ranger that he worked for the dea and he's also a <laughs> He's also a master at what, what can't this guy do? And he's doing it while still drunk. Right? Yeah. The,
1: the, the reason this movie has terrible reviews and is forgotten is because it layers silly twist upon silly twist that negates that, you know, eventually they all eat each other and negate each other. And it was all a pointless endeavor from the beginning, if you really sit and think about it, which you shouldn't. Don't sit and think about the, the plot of this movie. But the ride itself is, you know, this is an, another, I think, you know, 100-minute movie. And it goes down, it, God, it goes down real smooth um,
0: despite the silliness of it all. I'm so glad to hear that I'm not crazy. <laughs> like for, Literally <laughs> for the last five hours, I've been like, am I crazy? Was that movie kind of awesome? <laughs> I just can't, can't believe nobody talks about this movie. It's a total blast.
1: The thing is, like, I kind of wish, I, I would like to see a sequel with the team, like, doing sort of a military quasi-heist infiltration of a a different sort of inside job situation. Like, it'd be fun.
0: Well, here's the thing. I mean, since nobody has—since we're, you know, two of the eight people who've seen this movie— should we not spoil it? Like, I almost feel like this is kind of an endorsement of the movie, and I sort of want to call everybody I know and tell them to check out. Like, the first thing I did when I got done with the movie is I texted a friend of the podcast, Dan Kelly, and said, this is a real Dan Kelly movie. You should check this movie out if you haven't seen it already. Part of me doesn't want to spoil the twist ending because I kind of want people to check this out, and it's a very satisfying, very stupid, but very satisfying ending that I did not see coming. <laughs> All right, let's let's
1: let's agree not to okay. spoil it. Let's just, I, let's just say you. that, like,
0: yeah, the last <laughs> 30 minutes of this movie is just one twist after, and it just gets convoluted and con- more convoluted more convoluted and twisty and twisty and who's the real bad guy? And the ending, is I did not see it coming. It kind of warmed my heart in a weird way. I was just like, oh, that's that's where we're going? Okay. And, you know, this, this
1: will border on spoilers territory, but it's not that it doesn't kind of make sense. It's just that it makes the, the meat of this movie kind of pointless I think I think guess, that was right?
0: was it Malton I was reading a couple re- blurbs from reviews I think <laughs> Leonard Malton was saying yeah the end twist basically completely negates the entire film which is not an uncommon thing for twist to do but yeah where it lands and the way that it lands there and kind of the general demeanor of everybody in the room when it landed I was like I am just so happy to be here right now with these people this is <laughs> <laughs> I just find this all kind of unprecedented. I knew nothing about this movie going in. I knew that it was Travolta. It was an army movie. It was Travolta and it was Sam Jackson. And that it was that it was their first time they're going to make a movie together since Pulp Fiction, but that they only had one scene together and that seemed to really bother people because they didn't really get to spend any time together, which is fair. But they're both doing great work here and they're both having a very good time. I mean, Sam Jackson loves to chew the scenery. I find this to be one of the more... Um, effective uses of Jackson chewing this, like, in this this makes a lot more sense in terms of him chewing the scenery because he's playing a drill sergeant. So the fact that he's screaming at people yeah. throughout this, throughout like pretty much all of his screen time in this thing it makes a lot more sense than it does in something like uh, Deep Blue Sea, for example, right?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, coming in, I just thought this was going to be like sort of a grind, sort of a dour, overly serious war adjacent movie, and it was kind of the opposite of that. Plus, we get some delightful, you know. Bit rolls here from you know Tim Daly is is is
0: kind of fun. Right. We get Harry Connick Jr. He's pretty fun.
1: We get Giovanni Giovanni really chewing the scenery. Yeah,
0: Rubici he's always going for it. Right, he is not gonna get cheated. <laughs> yeah. Like no matter it doesn't matter. I mean he basically spends most of this movie in a in a hospital bed, but he is never gonna yeah. get cheated. Whether it's this or Saving Private Ryan or Friends <laughs> or uh, Ted, I mean that guy is gonna bring yeah. it no matter what. That guy is never gonna phone it in. He's
1: doing he's doing sort of like a Buffalo Bill. Okay. Type of yeah. t- type of vocal. He's made a vocal choice, in in, yeah, for sure. And then we get we get Tay Diggs as well. Yeah,
0: Tay Diggs. Apparently, the only person in this movie for whom the role he's playing was written for him. Apparently, James Vanderbilt Vanderbilt wrote this role for Tay Diggs, which just warms my heart.
1: James Vanderbilt was real hot shit for a while, and I was doing some digging. So this is one of his first movies. He wrote the screenplay for Zodiac. And then he got a bunch of, I think, big time offers, ended up writing Amazing Spider-Man and a bunch of other stuff. But he hasn't done anything good since Zodiac,
0: really. I mean, Zodiac is an all-timer. Zodiac is a masterpiece. He can, you know, he can uh, dine off that movie for the rest of his career. And that's fine because that movie is a a capital M masterpiece. But it does seem a little bit like a fluke, right?
1: Well, if you dig into it, it does seem like he was, you know, he, he did adapt it. He did a ton of research with Fincher. But at the end of the day, it does seem like Fincher... Himself rewrote the thing quite a bit. Fair. So, how much credit he should get for Zodiac? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, and this screenplay is, you know, it's it's charming and funny enough, and definitely set the stage for. For these actors to to do their work, yeah, I yeah, I, I was I was way more delighted than I thought I would be, and uh, it's honestly, if this is McTiernan's last film, it's 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 not the worst thing to go out of. It is kind of a shame that this movie got lost in the shuffle. I don't know if it was a, I don't remember this movie being marketed really at all. So
0: it feels like by this point everybody was pretty much done. They were just you know by by the time Rollerball was done, it was like all right, maybe we're done. You know, maybe McTiernan has overstayed his welcome. Maybe his best years are behind him. Like we determined, this is post. Travolta, I'm sorry. Post Battlestar, Battlefield Earth, Travolta. Yeah, and this is obviously pre Marvel. Samuel Jackson. So, and, and this was this was that moment that, that there was a few years there where they were trying to make Connie Nielsen happen from from Gladiator on, and we were trying really really hard to make Connie Nielsen happen. And she's a perfectly fine actress. I don't know if she's a great actress. They saddle her with this accent, which I, I don't know if it was her idea or not, but it was the it was a bad idea. She is kind of secretly the protagonist of this movie and i just Mm -hmm. don't if i had one major criticism to level against it it is that she can't carry that secret protagonist burden herself and Mm -hmm. to me it feels like and james vanderbilt has sort of like corroborated this in some interviews and stuff that it it almost this feels like a robert Ludlum or like a tom clancy book that's like the origin of a female like jack ryan or something right Like, it's the origin of this MP character who's going to cut her teeth on this particular experience, and then she's going to go on to all sorts of adventures after this, right? And she's going to... She's, you know, she's going to become uh, Tom Cruise from A Few Good Men or something, and she's going to go on to all these different stories. And like you said, it would be very easy to make a sequel to this movie, spoiler, she's alive at the end. And it seems like the movie's very, very interested in her and her journey and her revelation. And I just don't think Connie Nielsen uh, can cut it. I would have loved to have seen this movie. I, you know, I think, to say what you want to about Travolta and Jackson in terms of where they were in their careers at this point, they're both perfectly well cast in these roles. I would have loved to have seen this movie with a stronger actress in that Connie Nielsen role.
1: Yeah, something. something Someone better cast. You're right. the The chemistry is okay, and the, and the accents bad, and it's kind of she's kind of reserved in this role in a way that doesn't doesn't work as well as it could have. Yeah, I'm just looking at Connie Nielsen. Do you know that she was married to Lars Ulrich I did, for I didn't eight know that. years?
0: Yeah, I only know that because I looked at her Wikipedia page this morning.
1: She speaks eight languages too. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's
0: fair. She just shouldn't shouldn't try and put a uh, southern spin on one of them.
1: Yeah, and so she sort of disappeared after the mid two thousands. Yeah.
0: Uh, although you know she's
1: popped up here and there. She was good in Nymphomaniac, like everyone oh, yeah. else.
0: Oh yes, that's right. She's in that.
1: Go see Basic. We won't spoil any more. And uh, let's let's wrap up this oeuvre with uh, with just some overall thoughts and maybe. I assume you have your rankings of of McTiernan films ready.
0: I do. Should we wait on those, or or are you ready for it? Let's do it. I'm ready. So he's made 11 films, 11 features. Ranking from 11 to 1, Rollerball, number 11 with a bullet, then The 13th Warrior, then Medicine Man, then Nomads, then Last Action Hero, then Basic, then The Thomas Crown Affair, then The Hunt for Red October, then Predator, and Die Hard with a Vengeance, and then Die Hard at number 1. I don't think this is especially controversial, so I'm mostly interested in in the in the lower half of your list.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is this was honestly one of the easiest rankings <laughs> I've had to do. Fair. <laughs>
0: um, Although, I'm to we where I basic ro-
1: lands. Now, now they hear we both love it. Well, it's going to be anticlimactic because it's pretty similar to yours. Um, I have Rollerball last very easily. Then I have Nomads, Medicine Man, Thirteenth Warrior, Last Action Hero, Basic, Thomas Crown Affair, Predator, Hunt for Red October. I don't know. I just went
0: with, went with went with your heart
1: yeah I, I did Die Hard and then I topped it with Die Hard with Avengers okay. this is my favorite rankings mostly what I, I movies are interchangeable for me yeah. more often maybe I think Medicine Man is a better movie than 13th Warrior but I don't want to watch Medicine Man again I, I think Last Action Hero uh, below Basic makes sense in, in that regard I think you have the same thing I do right? and I and
0: I literally just flip-flopped them a few hours ago I mean I, I adore Last Action Hero I think it's a lot of fun but I think Basic might actually be a better movie than, like Last Action Hero is true truly a mess whereas basic is basically competent like it basically does what it sets out to do and it's it's not mm-hmm. it's it's not messiness i mean it's it's silly and it's very mm-hmm. like kind of trashy and pulpy but it's 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 not bad you know it's not it's not a mess like i was expecting it to be and honestly like again to try to uh steer clear of spoilers that scene where travolta pulls the guy off the plane and holds his face up against the Against the rotor, or <laughs> the propeller of the plane, I was just like, I was so delighted. I was like, I- I'm in. I can't believe this movie is going to this place. Like, I just, this is so silly and fun. And I, I, and there were still 30 minutes of the movie left. Like, I was like, okay, this has got to be the climax of the movie, right? And then I looked at my at my QuickTime file. Like, no, there's still 30 minutes of this movie left. Where's this gonna go? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I could just be flying high on the basic on the endorphins from having just watched Basic. But yeah, I think it's a better movie than Last Action Hero. I think it's interesting you flip flop Hunt for Red October and Predator because it seems like consensus opinion is that Predator and Die Hard are one and two with a bullet.
1: In terms of comfort food, I, I would just much rather turn on Hunt for Red October and something I have turned on far more often than Predator. But, you know, I love and respect Predator all the same. But man, Basic... You know, comparing it to Last Action Hero or or any of the movies below it, I mean, that's a movie you could just turn on on a on a Sunday afternoon and feel pretty good about. It. Yeah, I
0: couldn't. I just couldn't get over how, like you said, I, I I was going into it expecting it to be kind of dark and kind of a slog and kind of s- uh, stoic. You know, just kind of like looking yeah. at the poster, reading what it's about. Like, oh, this is just going to be like a really stodgy kind of dry procedural and it couldn't that couldn't be further from the truth also something that's kind of fun about basic with basic samuel l jackson becomes becomes the fifth mctiernan two-timer in terms of leading men so he worked with pierce Brosnan twice he worked with schwarzenegger twice he worked with bruce willis twice he worked with uh sean connery twice and now he's worked with samuel l twice right so i want to use that as kind of the Entry point into our discussion, into our wrap-up about the man, sort of like how misunderstood I feel he is. Because he is the kind he is he is the most unlikely actor's director. But from what I've seen and what I've read and what I've heard and all the commentaries I've listened to, and I've listened to a lot of his commentaries over the course of the last couple of months, he is quietly and modestly an actor's director. And it's clear that actors Really like working with the guy and like going, you know, all Omar Sharif's aside, (laughs) like going back to work with the guy. And he has an unbelievable amount of respect for actors. Like when you listen to his commentary tracks, that's the thing he most wants to talk about is how incredible his experience was with Bill Duke on the set of Predator, right? <laughs> you know, or all these little character actors whose names we don't know in uh, in Die Hard with a Vengeance and how he still keeps in contact with them. And, you know, oh, this guy, you know, oh, this guy just passed away recently. Or, oh, I just talked to him on the phone the other day. Or, oh, I, it was just his birthday the other day. Or, like, he's just so reverent of all these people because he comes out of the theater. And that's the other thing is we yeah. forget, like, oh, this guy came from Juilliard. And this guy went to the AFI. And this guy, you know, like, directed theater and stuff. And we think of him as the explosion guy. But he really is so much more kind of cerebral and thoughtful than, his, than the subject matter he's often exploring would lead us to believe. He, he gets yeah. to this place post—it's actually probably happening before and after, basic, if you really look at the timeline. But he gets to this place where he's he's been, you know, thrice divorced, and he has complicated relationships with studio heads and— um and obviously has a lot of paranoia, and became quite wealthy as a result of many of his successes. And just gets himself in a place where he starts, depending on who you believe, and this is all obviously alleged. Although he's, you know, he was he was convicted of these things. He starts authorizing wiretaps for his colleagues and maybe even ex-wives. And he yeah. doesn't get away with that for very long. He, you know, maintains his innocence or maintains he was railroaded, or you know, what what he was arguing is a little bit. Murky, you know, when you when you when you go through multiple lawyers over the course of multiple years, and you have to do multiple plea bargains, mm-hmm. and different tabloids are reporting on this stuff differently. What really happened is obviously pretty murky, and that's up, you know, that's between he and his god or whatever. It sounds like uh, he authorized or wireta- he paid for wiretaps through this guy uh, Anthony Pelicano, who's a famous kind of like Hollywood PI fixer dude. That wasn't as big of a deal as the fact that he lied to the FBI about it. It seems like they really made an example out of him because he lied about it for so long. So if he had copped to mm-hmm. it early, he pr- he still probably would have done jail time, but they may not have necessarily thrown the book at him the way that they ended up doing. I mean, he ended up doing almost a year and was fined $100,000 or something. And, yeah. you know, he may it may very well have been spent in sort of like white collar prison. Who's to say? But I mean, the guy did legitimate time and he went bankrupt as a result of um, all of his legal fees and stuff. I think he went in and 2013, I want to say? I think he, I think he went yeah, to Youngton I mean, It prison. was a long legal battle
1: that he, was, that he went through. I mean, this is all stemming from stuff in the early 2000s.
0: It sounds like Rollerball and his relationship with Charles Roven was kind of the beginning of that because they were so at odds with one another. They had such completely different ideas about what that movie should be and should look like that he uh, started tapping. He was um, paying for these phone taps of Charles Roven's phones because he wanted to blackmail him because he wanted to get evidence of him talking shit about other studio heads or whatever. Yeah. Either way, just, um, you know, serious professional mistakes (laughs) being made on his part. Yeah. To say nothing of how long he may very well have been tapping his ex-wife's bones during their lengthy legal battle. I believe they're still in litigation. I don't think that's done. I think she's still suing him yeah. for multiple things. So I think he may continue to battle that with her and, and pay her for many, many years to come.
1: It's a, it's, a, it's a tragic thing in a number of ways, right? I mean, it's who knows what this paranoia, this, you know, him just losing the plot during that time affected the quality of, of those movies. I don't know if it had any effect on, on Rollerball or or Basic or 13th Warrior or any of that. But then just the ensuing legal. Legal bullshit for over a decade and continuing to now hurt his career, obviously. He didn't get to make any movies during that time, or he or he couldn't make any movies during that time. You know, it it robbed him of what should have been sort of a a late prime to his career. And you know, we we've seen the big time directors work until their sixties, seventies, eighties now, and there's no reason he could have couldn't have continued to be a go to kind of guy. Now, it's possible that his action chops weren't sort of melding with the modern sensibilities because i think something i don't know interesting to bring up is while he's known as an action director it's not like he was a virtuosic action filmmaker in terms of set pieces and whatnot right it was the character stuff it was the suspense it was the thriller aspect that really made your diehards and hunt for red octobers and predators work it wasn't necessarily his his camera work on the action scene so You know, I I wonder if that's part of the reason he hasn't yet made a new movie or didn't continue on or if he was questioning his own abilities as we went into the mid 2000s. But it's, you know, it's a damn shame. And I think being the optimist that we are, let's hope he, he gets his third act. Finally,
0: I'd love nothing more than to see that he has a film in development at the moment which I believe is called um,
1: Tau City thank 4. Thank you, right?
0: thank you. Tau City 4, which has already cast Uma Thurman in the lead role. Uh, they took it to Cannes. They, they took the pitch to Cannes a couple of years ago. Apparently they got financing for it. So they theoretically should be able to get to work on that as soon as we come out of this quarantine. It is only his second, if the film does end up getting made, it will only be his second writing credit after Nomads, Yeah, which is kind of interesting. So in that regard, it, it really will be an important film in terms of him not only coming back to movies, but also really putting his voice out there. And to be able to hear from him personally from, I mean I don't know how personal the film is, but to be able to see a film that he writes and directs after having gone for so long and after having gone through so much and having had his popular and professional, reputation completely changed forever. I would just be very interested to see I just I just want to see it. I just want to see what it would look like. I just want to see where where he's coming from at this point after everything that's happened. And I want to see if he still got it. And but that being said, would it would it be depressing for him to come out of forced retirement after so long and make a bad movie like when should we just leave it as it is like leave his oeuvre as it is like leave let, let sleeping dogs lie and just let basic be sort of like an uh, an unappreciated <laughs> fun final you know sort of like uh like tony scott's uh un- unstoppable right like i feel like that's a yeah. movie that's a wonderful movie but it's a movie that has only recently sort of started to get the appreciation it deserves part of that being that christopher nolan and Quentin Tarantino have been have both been very vocal uh, defenders and uh, flag wavers for that movie. But uh, it would be fun if like someday Basic got rediscovered and we're like, oh wow, he actually had like one more great film in him. Would that be better it, than uh, for Seti Alpha Four to come around and be like, oh boy, he's really he lost it. He's old. Uh, no. Let's give him one more yeah, chance. I want. I'm, I'm ready to give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's put it that way.
1: Because you know he's got enough time left. He can make a few more movies. Tau Seti Four, I believe, is. A gritty space action movie right which Which he actually sounds fucking awesome he hasn't
0: really made i mean unless you count predator he hasn't really made his his sci-fi his his space movie yet
1: and that's exactly what i want i mean who knows in in a couple years tau city 4 comes out it's a hit reinvigorates uma's career mctiernan then gets to make the um the sequel to thomas crown affair that he wrote while in prison Mm -hmm. brings pierce brosnan back Mm -hmm. let's do it that's the future i see
0: Sounds great to me. I feel like he was a left field choice for a series like this, but I'm really, really proud that we got a chance to to do this and talk about him. And I'm so glad we get to end on kind of like a positive note here, considering how checkered the man's past has been. As I said, I've been listening to a ton of his commentaries and I, it's weird to say it, but I find his voice to be very soothing. He, he He's a little <laughs> gravelly, but he also is just very th- sort of like thoughtful and, and kind of soft-spoken and just like Laying in bed, listening to him talking about Predator as I fall asleep, it's just for some reason I find it really, really soothing. <laughs> and i have just a couple of things that just really resonated with me when he talks about there's the whole foreign language thing, right? Like we, the, the the famous scene from Hunt for October and the maybe less famous scene but still fun scene from uh, from the Thirteenth Warrior. When it comes to language, he says he doesn't mind when actors speak in foreign language without subtitles because he's not really interested in how they say it as to depo- I'm sorry, he's more interested in how they say it as opposed to what they're saying. He feels that cinema is much sure. closer to music than is to the theater. So he likes the music of language, the music of movement, the music of cutting. And this is a this is a thing that keeps coming up in many of his in his commentaries and in his interviews where he's talking about how movies are much closer to music than they are to the theater. And that's significant considering that he came from the theater and he's a he admits that he has zero musical training whatsoever, but he considers himself a musician when he makes movies and he's approaching every filmmaking decision as if he's composing music and every shot is a note and every shot is filling in the blanks on the way to the next note and all that stuff needs to be kind of rhythmic. The camera movements need to be like thematically motivated, emotionally motivated, not necessarily narratively motivated, right? And that's very significant considering that he is amongst the greatest directors to ever move the camera. I mean, I'd put him up there with, you know, Spielberg and Fellini in terms of guys who, and Scorsese, who just instinctively understand how to move the camera, which is not necessarily something that even great filmmakers all have perfected and mm-hmm. so when i yeah. think about mctiernan especially having gone through this whole oeuvre and having listened to his voice talk about having listened to so many interviews with him i realize that the one thing that he kind of has perfected is not just the way that he moves the camera but the way that he's able to cut between multiple moving camera shots which is again uh, which is another very very difficult thing to master and for him it's just mm-hmm. like it's just all about rhythm and it's sort of about the intangibles he says that it's not necessarily that it, that every action scene is sort of defined by the space not necessarily by the location but by the space And all of his films are defined by the space that they take place in. And each individual action scene is thusly defined by the space that it takes place in. And he is very, very conscious of that. And he's very hard on himself in terms of making sure that he's always being cognizant and respectful of the space. And as a result, he's the master of one of these things that you and I champion really, really passionately when it comes to action filmmaking, which is geography, right? So that is a thing that even in crap like rollerball and in some of the Mm -hmm. sillier stupider action sequences in basic you're still never ever confused about where you are in relation to the action and that is a that is an incredibly underappreciated skill set and something that i am always trying to champion the couple times that i've gotten to teach, teach cinematography or directing or you know done video essays or gotten a lecture about these kinds of things I just, I try to just really make that one of my main selling points that like, we need to be more cognizant of the importance of, of prioritizing geography, understanding that like moving the camera is a privilege. Let's understand why we're moving it and let's move it as effectively (laughs) as possible. Right. And, uh, and I think he's one of those guys who does both of those things does. I mean, he just makes it look so easy. And as a result, he does it in such a way that he is not spoken about in the same hallowed terms as, as James Cameron and Steven Spielberg. And I, I really think he's, he's just one of the most important. You know, we keep, we keep calling him action filmmaker, action filmmaker. I think you brought up an interesting point, which is that he makes thrillers. You know, he makes like suspense thrillers. Yeah. And maybe we should even think about excising this word action out of descriptions of the man because I think that, it, that even that word may discount him a little bit
1: what, what I was yeah what I was trying to say is like this: the difference between this guy and like James Cameron or Michael Bay is pretty stark I mean he's he's not reliant on VFX he's not real he doesn't do a lot of CGI stuff he's you know he's not a, like a technician in, in that regard like you said the geography the suspense that's what he relies on as opposed to doing stuff in post you
0: know I'll, I'll just quote him directly here the camera isn't just moving for the sake of keeping it moving the camera is an active narrator in a thriller. The camera has to tell you how to evaluate every piece of information you get and put it into context. So he really is one of those guys mm-hmm. who thinks of the camera as, as a character, as a narrator. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he keeps talking about like every single piece shot has to be in the same key. The way that shots talk to each other is only effective if they're they're in the same key, which is a musical term, obviously. And as a result, it's kind of an amorphous mm-hmm. idea. All these different factors that play into finding the right key for a shot. He, he says that he thinks that's the secret, He can't explain to you how to do it. It's a combination of so many different things. And, you know, if we could explain to people how to compose a great shot or how to make a great movie, it wouldn't necessarily be art then, right? It'd be science or something. He doesn't know how to, he he can't explain to you how how to do it. He just says that the way he approaches it is that the reason that his movies are so smooth and the reason that the action is so effective and they're so visually coherent, his highest priority that every shot is in the same key as the shot that's going to follow it, which I think is a really mm-hmm. elegant way of putting it and makes it so clear how how much he considers it to be akin to music. I just find that really kind of like a, a, a magical um, sort of metaphor.
1: Matt, it's, it's sad to uh, say goodbye to McTiernan, but I think we should wrap this up. I know you like to ask our audiences to uh, take action, call to action. So what do you have to say to them, man?
0: Well, thank you for listening. If you haven't figured it out yet, we like movies, but we also like podcasting and we want to continue doing it. If you've liked what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our podcast on all of your various podcatchers. Follow us on uh, all the socials at WLM Podcast. Drop us a line, Podcast at gmail.com. If you're currently flush and you want to contribute and help us keep the lights on at WLMHQ, visit movies.com and click on the Donation link at the top. This is also where you could find archives, rankings, articles, video essays, or other assorted WLM ephemera. I will say before uh, before I queue you up for our outro, we probably should announce our next oeuvre, right?
1: You know what? I'm gonna let you announce it because this is a person who's near and dear to your heart.
0: So here's the deal: we're recording this uh, on the 17th of April, which means that it is exactly three months until Tenet comes out in theaters. Now, this is presupposing that (laughs) movies come out in theaters again someday. Warner Brothers has said nothing about bumping the movie, and certain cinema chains have announced their intentions to open for business as usual in July. It may be a totally different world. Things may change tomorrow. This movie may never see a theater. This movie may not come out till next year. But working under the presumption that we will be back in movie theaters to see Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which I've uh, gone on record as saying is definitely my most anticipated film of 2020 with a bullet. I think it makes sense to go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off. Christopher Nolan is not the most revolutionary idea for a series like this, but I have have an idea. I have a plan. I have thoughts about how we can cover him in a new way. (laughs) I'm interested in not covering Nolan chronologically. I want to cover Nolan thematically. And if you'll indulge me in this journey... I would very much and he would have it no other way (laughs) it can't be it can't (laughs) be chronological it can't just be normal temporality we're gonna have to jump around we're gonna have to jump back we're gonna have to jump forward and it's all going to be about thematic reoccurrences over the course of his career i've written many uh academic essays about the man made video essays about him given this a lot of thought have many spreadsheets and i would love to kind of filter all of that into an oeuvre series with you so if you'll indulge me this He's, he's, this uh, Tenet is going to be his 11th film, exactly as many films as McTiernan had, so I feel like this is the right time, this is the right length. Let's just fucking do it, man.
1: Yeah, and we're going to have some disagreements, which will be fun.
0: In the meantime, please spread the word, tell your friends about We Like Movies, and help us keep the conversation going for Oscar Dahl. I'm Matt Knutsen and the degree of difficulty on this series was...
1: Four out of nine topless weightlifters. <laughs>